I'm Isabel Allen, Editor of Architecture Today. You're listening to 80 Conversations with Inevidesk. You can subscribe at architecturetoday.co.uk forward slash podcasts. I'm here today to talk about the Illuminated River Project, one of the most ambitious public art projects in the world. And my two guests are Sarah Gaventa, Director of the Illuminated River Foundation, and Alex Lifschutz, founder of Lifschutz, Davis and Sanderlands, who are architects involved with the project. So, Sarah, for anyone who doesn't know, what is the Illuminated River Project? Um, it's a project, a very ambitious project to look at the Thames, look at the bridges on the Thames and um, commission an artwork, a light artwork that brings them to life, that reveals their architecture um, and creates some unity between and um, compatibility between the bridges. So it's a free, large scale, private art, uh, public artwork, not private at all, in fact. Um, and the first four bridges were lit in July 2019 and five more bridges will be lit this spring. And who dreamt up the project and what were they tra- hoping to achieve? It's, um, it's a project that's had a long um, history. Uh, it's Lord Rothschild, when he was chairman of Somerset House, attempting to turn it from a sort of civil service car park into a uh, cultural institution, used to look out on, to Waterloo Bridge, which was very dark, and wonder why um, it wasn't illuminated, why there wasn't um, uh, more effort put into sort of revealing the bridges, which is why the whole reason London is there. Um, and he talked to James Terrell, the great light artist, um, about it. But then nothing came. It was a bit uh, too before its time. And then after the Olympics in 2012, oh, remember those glorious days, um, they were looking for a project, a pan-London project that was cultural, that would uh, be available to so many people. I mean, it, it, uh, phase one of our bridges are seen in a normal year, if we can remember those by 60 million people. So they're looking for a project that has some ambition um, and to celebrate uh, London. Um, and this project sort of developed from that. So Lord Rothschild and Hannah Rothschild developed it, developed it from a one-bridge idea into, well, how many bridges could we do and could we have an international competition? And the competition was funded by the Mayor's Office as part of this legacy from the Olympics. And that project was won by Leo Villarreal with Alex. So we uh, we came to the project with Leo Villarreal. We pitched together. He is an absolutely brilliant artist. And uh, unlike one's potential image of an artist with a floppy beret and, you know, some paints, he's technically very, very astute. And he um, had done the Bay Bridge in San Francisco and had already uh, encountered many of the challenges that we encounter at the Thames, working over water, difficult weather conditions, and so on. So he knew that he needed to have a local um, uh, collaborator. And, uh, you know, we were the we were the chosen practice, we worked together on the proposal, and then we pitched it uh, to a jury that included James Terrell, who Sarah's just mentioned, and we were fortunate to win it. I suppose our, our sort of um, collaboration is is quite an interesting one between an artist and a non-architect a sociologist in fact um in that you know we understand what each other does um and we we are sort of careful not to overstep but at the same time there's a great deal of overlap because obviously we know a little bit about lighting having having lit certain several environments up and down the river ourselves and 
also um, he knows a lot about technology. So there's this overlap, which is rather intriguing. And, so was it, uh, was it, let me just yeah, ask, was it controversial giving the commission to an American artist? I mean, it's kind of the quintessential London project, isn't it? Yeah, no, it's a good question, but it was an international competition. Yeah, I think it should be. Yeah. Um, and, and he won. Um, um, and I think actually it's a fresh pair of eyes. We've got Alex's eyes that knows this, the, the, the bridges really well. In fact, his practice has designed one of the bridges um, that, that is within the scheme. And to have a fresh pair of eyes on London um, who saw it, and Leo has seen it as a great honour and, and you know, he's very respectful of that environment. But in a way, he comes without all the baggage as well, which I think mm. isn't a bad, a bad thing. Um, and I think it was a sort of, a, it's felt like a, that that shouldn't be an issue about whether he was... Uh, from London or not. And I think the rest of the team are. So we've got Atelier 10, you know, who are great environmental and lighting designers and engineers. And, and um, we've got, uh, you know, planners, etc. It's a very London-based team who sort of know and breathe these spaces and, and Alex's practice um, know this area of the river so, so well. So, and that's helped Leo a lot. But, we, you know, you've had to, ex- we've had to explain things to him like, um, uh, that, you know, the, the bridges, we don't own the bridges, which is really interesting, and that they change colour when babies are born. And, and so he ha- can't have his artwork on there for when for when royal babies are born. Oh, who knew? I didn't so know having, So, yeah, so Tower Bridge, when um, uh, George was born, um, it went blue. It was just wow. as well that their first baby wasn't a girl because actually Tower Bridge's lighting scheme isn't, <coughs> wasn't sophisticated enough to go pink, so they'd have been a bit Brilliant. stuffed. But he wasn't really aware of maybe um, some of the issues and some of the opportunities and the way we use of the bridges um, to celebrate and, and commiserate in terms of um, changing the light, etc. So it's been a learning curve for everybody. But that in itself is, is fascinating. I mean, I find that quite moving, really, and God knows I'm no royalist. But actually, if you can just draw attention to that kind of cultural significance those bridges have had in the past, that in itself feels like quite an important civic contribution. Yeah, I mean, I mean, during during COVID, we turned the bridges blue every Thursday, the Phase One bridges, to support the NHS. I mean, light, light, and colour are so powerful and emotive. And I think one of the things that we've learnt during this project are things we hadn't really thought were going to be important. So, for example, uh, people have really enjoyed the calmness of the artwork, or the gentle movement. It's not a light show. It's it's something that's. Uh, very soothing and and it's had extra resonance during this last crazy year so you know people are going for walks and then feeling that they've uh i remember Gillian Darley writing something really positive about about it's quite soulful in a way so and these things that we couldn't have anticipated so um i think it's it's bringing a, a new qualities um, to our public realm well i guess there's something isn't there in the abstract nature of it that allows it to be appropriated for different meanings and uh, i mean one of the the questions I wanted to ask was whether you considered a more directly polemical approach. And I was thinking about projects. Um, so the RSA, for example, sponsored a spate of projects, which I'm sure you know, where, you know, you would kind of get words written and maybe it would say, I don't know, pollution or something. And, you know, the word gets stronger, the more filthy the air, or we had that sort of, very kind of um, strident moment in our history when the unemployment figures were always written up in lights on City Hall. And, you know, clearly you've got these incredibly high profile, effectively 
hoardings, or they could be, that everyone can see, that almost by their definition can't be obscured. Did you toy with the idea of actually trying to be very kind of provocative, or did you know you wanted something a bit less um, specific? Well, I, I think it would be interesting to look at the competition. I don't think anybody did come up with that particular approach, the polemical approach in that way. Our pitch, um, the polemical bit of our pitch, was something we've gone on to develop called Saving the Night, which was that whilst we wanted um, to light the bridges with art, we also felt very strongly that there was far too much light around in mm. London anyway. And that, it, you know, it's a bit like going to a theatre. If the, if the house lights don't go down and the usherettes are, or ushers are, um, you know, overlit, how can you see what's going on on the stage? And our, our strong feeling is, both from an environmental point of view, but also from an urban sort of legibility point of view you know you can't have the kebab shop that's brighter than St Paul's <laughs> Cathedral and and that is currently the situation in fact St Paul's is only lit half of it is lit and the rest not very well so it was also about you know what is important in in our life in the city what is our culture about and how do we navigate a city and we navigate yeah okay maybe some people navigate by the kebab shop certainly at at 4am in the morning, but you know, that it is important that we recognise the culture of our city and that we emphasise that. That is the theatre of living in, in a place like London. This is 80 Conversations with an Everdesk, making powerful, affordable virtual desktops a reality. We're not political, so having something polemical, you can't advertise along the river. The only reason why that OXO tower has that sign is that they were able to put it in as a piece of stained glass artwork because, you know, it's a blatant advert. Can't advertise by the river. Um, And also the bridges, they have identities of their own. So really what Leo is doing is sympathetically sort of revealing their sort of architecture. So the way that he's lit them, the light and the bridge becomes the artwork together. So that, that's really important. And because there's, they're so high profile, as you say, so visible, you can't have something that is so distracting. Um, and, mm. you know, this is not a TV screen. Um, it needs to last at least 10 years. It should be something you can enjoy and also ignore if you, if you want to, you know. So it, it can't dominate. I think that's in, incredibly important. And, in fact, we've got some fail-safes. So, for example, Millennium Bridge, which, you know, is a piece of art in itself designed by Foster's, the light can only ever be white on that because that's the right thing to do with that bridge. It's certainly what the architects would like to do, wanted to do, and Leo worked with them to to do that so that our work can't be changed to um, our kit can't be used for other purposes. And because it's all computerized, the last thing we want to do was create something that could be hacked mm. <laughs> and yeah, find all sure. sorts of strange things, you know, uh, popping up across this these canvases across the Thames. That would that would be a disaster. So I suppose um, on that note, obviously at the moment, you know, we're at this point where the safety of our public spaces and streets is very much in the public spotlight. Um, How do you see your project as standing within the whole debate about urban lighting, the difference between a nighttime city and a daytime city? Alex has obviously touched on this. I think we know that a 24 economy is is key to a successful city, but at the same time, you know that from a wildlife perspective and frankly, from a mental health perspective for a lot of people, you don't want the day to feel like the night. The rhythm is very important. Um, what, you know, do you think the Millennium Bridge project has 
forwarded our understanding and our focus and our willingness to invest in projects that look into light and how it impacts on city life. We looked at things like, well, the lighting schemes on some of the bridges previously had been on till dawn and that had been set in the 1970s. So we said to the City of London, well, you know, 24-hour city, well, actually, actually, it's pretty much not after two o'clock in the morning. Why don't we just turn all the lights off? off on the bridges so the artwork disappears at two and that we mm. reclaim the darkness because we've kind of got the wrong name we're not eliminating the river I mean Alex's team have worked so hard to um, create to uh, put the kit so that it actually only shines on the bridges and that we take the light off off the river so we're actually protecting wildlife so it, it's done an awful lot of work um, around that so you know it's it, we don't want to compete we don't want to see lots of Leo Villarreal um, kinetic artworks just springing up all around because mm. it's a cacophony at the moment and they're competing so for example there's a a lot of light over terry farrell's rather nice i think um post uh, uh you know uh, um, his postmodernism building the the which uh, above oh it's, it's charing cross station isn't it and and it, but it looks like a world it's a but it's the offices of PricewaterhouseCooper. There's no reason for it to be so brightly lit at night. You know, you know, it's not a place to go and have fun. I'm pretty certain about that. And when I said to the facilities manager, why is it so brightly lit? He said it's to compete against the South Bank and the National Theatre, which actually has stuff going on in the evening. So this goes back to, you know, Alex's original pitch, actually, which was really well made um, and which we've taken up with this idea that we, we uh, instigated with the Centre for for London to yeah. do this sort of report on the fact that we know there are only two local authorities with lighting strategies, and that's the city and Westminster, that our historic environment disappears at night because it's competing against what facilities managers want us to see, and commercial buildings are overlit, and there's no curation. As you mm. say, nighttime isn't daytime, but with the lights on, it needs to have its own qualities, and I think that's something that Alex and I both feel very strongly about, and so I've been working with local authorities around the bridges to turn some stuff off or to make things a bit more even and for the light to be for pedestrians and not cars. Um, and then Alex has a bigger vision, don't you, Alex? Which um, He needs to be, well, no, I've, he, I've, needs to, I've mentioned, he needs to do. I've mentioned the idea of saving the night. We've worked with Mark Major, Spears and Major on, on, a, on a sort of vague campaign to try and, and explain that the night is not the same as the day, but with the lights switched on, mm. it, it is a different mood it's different environment and there's a lot of nature that happens at night i mean the sort of headlines that you get about um you know fish and birds and bats being disrupted are all true and you know there's north american cities now are turning off the lights in in their big buildings because birds crash into them and that's certainly true in, in in london um I just wanted to say though that there is something about this project which i think is magical um uh, the art, but also the opportunism. And there is um, a sort of mood about the green um, revolution that we need that says that, you know, one mood is that you need moonshots, you need a bridge to Ireland, or you need a, you know, a magic machine that will allow you to fly without expending uh, any energy or that hydrogen will solve. Actually, that's not the case. It's much easier to start with projects like this, which are opportunistic, where you take something that already exists and you add, you know, we're talking about between five and 10 or 15 kilowatts of electricity per bridge. We're talking about a domestic amount of electricity. You add some light and you create something that is revealed that, you know, was in plain sight, that is a piece of art. 
And that's what I really think is, if you want the strongest message, is that with very little indeed, you create something that is magical and it is greater, far greater than than the sort of application of, you know, a moonshot. I don't think we need moonshots. We need this kind of magic. And you change perception, don't you? And I, I mean, for me, you know, the most powerful thing about your project is that it's completely transformed the the diagram, if you like, or the mental map of London. So whereas before you had, it's kind of the EastEnders theme tune, isn't it? You know, you read the river as this big black divide. And I know Sarah earlier touched on the kind of competitiveness between north of the river and south of the river. And actually what you've done at a stroke is you've emphasised the links. Those are the shots of colour. Now, psychologically and culturally, that feels to me very poetic and very moving. I'm interested to know, and Alex, I know you've got a very long history of working with businesses and communities on the South Bank. Um, How much does this project actually relate into work, which is about improving the lives of the communities either side and maybe going some way towards working against that north-south divide? Well, curiously, we have two projects at the moment that are sort of in the same, have the same sort of spirit. One is a ferry across the river at Hammersmith Bridge. We just put in uh, an application for a jetty there, and that um, will help. It's a sticking plaster for a bridge that's now out of service, as you know. But working with a chap called Tim Beckett, um, a wonderful marine engineer, he's also doing projects um, for ferries across the river, electric ferries across the river. So, as I say, not moonshots. These are opportunistic ways of creating passage, you know, and flow. And then working with him again, a project we're very excited about, is a new bridge at uh, the Thames Barrier, which is, I don't know if you realise that there's about 30 bridges across the river west of Tower Bridge, but none east of Tower Bridge till you get to the Dark Crossing. So the whole um, community uh, of East London and South East London is not served by crossings. They, they have to go into tunnels or on the DLR or, dare I say, on, on the Woolwich Ferry or that absurd, the Emirates um, gondolas. So th- th- these are the sorts of projects I think, you know, artists and uh, architects and engineers can come up with. The, the problem we have is we don't have an Illuminated River Foundation, a Rothschild Foundation, you know, some of the other Blavatnik and so on, some of the other sponsors of the Illuminated River who are generous enough to, um, to sponsor that project. But we need a way of funding and financing, even if it's just the seed fi- finance, other green projects that, you know, people locally mm-hmm. want and and are promoting and that's that i suppose is the lesson here you have something tremendous being funded by people who understand arts and culture but elsewhere the desert is dry this is 80 conversations with inevidesk to find out more visit inevidesk.uk i i would say there was an awful lot of learning about how Two local authorities, you know, who've got the same jobs, who share a bridge each side of the river, couldn't tell me who was the person that did the same job on the other side of the river. There's no conversation. Mm. There were five bridge owners, none of whom ever had conversations with any of the other bridge owners. So we, it's all about boroughs and who owns what. So we just see as a landscape, don't we, or as as a riverscape. Um, But they see it as their patch and their patch and their patch. 
So we're creating a legacy group. So the bridge owners will get together on a regular basis to talk about how they manage illuminated river and to sort of share best practice and talk about the, the bridges collectively because we see them. Um, you know, four or five at a time, but that's not how they view it. So that there's that real disconnect. Um, and I think there's this idea, I suppose what we wanted to, to do was get people to stop, to think of bridges as architecture, street, place, and not something you hurry across to get to the other side. Um, and bringing communities down to the river is a, it was also another important thing because there are, there are communities, two or three streets back, who... Two or three generations ago were lightermen and watermen and had a relationship with the river. And quite a lot of the social housing estates in Southwark are like this. Don't go down to the river anymore. You know, it's for tourists. It's a bit like that thing with the seaside where you get the grockles going to St. Ives or Emmets, I think they call them down there. But the locals don't go to the beach. So what has been really important part of this project is reconnecting local communities with the Thames. You can come out of London Bridge Station and not know where London Bridge is or where the Thames is. You can't see it. So it's about how we make that permeable. So we're looking at routes through. We've worked with local schools to get the kids interested and tell the histories of the bridges. Um, and then to sort of draw them down and using Illuminated River, I think of it as a project for Londoners. I don't care about tourists. It, it's for Londoners to, to enjoy as they go about on their commute, as they go for recreation. Um, and we have built so many barriers against the Thames. One in town children who live in Westminster have never seen the Thames, partly because you've got massive buildings right on it. You know, you can't get on the Thames for free. Um, it's impossible unless you fall in. So, and boat tours are 25 quid. So we do six quid boat tours, which are the same as commuting. So we're trying to find lots of different ways of getting communities re-engaged and, and making sure that they, that this project um, is for them. It's, this is why London is there, isn't it? That's because of the Tim. So, but we, so we found ourselves as also like an honest broker, having, having conversations with over 50 community groups, but there is no, there is no czar for the Thames. You know, there is nobody in the GLA who's looking after the Thames. There's a PLA where that's very, you know, commercially driven. Um, but there's no one looking after the Thames for Londoners. Okay, I'm going to ask uh, one last question before we go um, to Alex. So obviously none of us anticipated coronavirus and the complete degradation really of our cultural and civic life. Uh I, I don't know the answer to this. Did it suddenly feel like, why are we spending huge amounts of philanthropic money on something nice and sparkly when there's such widespread economic and social turmoil? Or does it now become something we desperately need, a symbol of togetherness and hope? What what has COVID done for the project? Well, I think, uh, I mean, obviously started before and who knows what would have happened if the timing had been different. But now that it's here, it is uh, a ray of hope, literally a ray, you know, photons of hope, shall we say, for how London could be. And I, I just really think that um, this city, with its polycentric sort of organisation, which is, which is sort of bedeviled, as, as uh, Sarah said, the organisation of the river, has this wonderful ability to regenerate itself. It has survived the Blitz. It has survived many other uh, crises and it will survive COVID. And this is the kind of thing that unites people in London. And there is a tremendous esprit de corps here. I just, you know, I'm, an, a, it's my adopted city. I was born thousands of miles away. But I just believe that 
there is a sort of spirit in this city that will overcome COVID and overcome all the heartache that will follow because there will be a lot of heartache. Um, there will be a lot of unemployment. There will be a lot of mental uh, health problems. But I think, you know, with projects like this, embracing art, culture, engineering, architecture, transport, you know, all the things that this project represents, we can live better lives and we can be more optimistic. And that is a fantastic place to end. Um, Alex and Sarah, thank you very, very much for joining me today. You've been listening to 80 Conversations with Inevidesk. To subscribe, visit architecturetoday.co.uk forward slash podcasts. Podcasts.